Hi, I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic, but you know what? I think we're just going to keep going after the pandemic because there's so much information out there and so many cool people to talk to. Um, we definitely have guests through uh, most of November. We're going to take a break over Thanksgiving holiday. Um, we'll be back in December. I've got more lined up. Um, and if you have any suggestions, just pop me an email at wendy at wendymurdoch.com. Um, I've got some people I have to get back to, and um, but we have just so many interesting people to talk to. And of course, Pam Eckelberger's and Diane Dezingle's webinar on November 16th is going to be really good. I know you've all been anticipating that. But tonight, my guest is Emma Loftus, and she's back for the second time, because we talked to Emma about a month ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and we found out that she has some really cool information about embryology and the sphenoid bone. Um, I'm not going to um, kind of try to explain this. I'm going to let her do that. So welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me back on. I'm really excited and a bit nervous. <laughs> yep. So Emma's from Australia, so it's the morning there for her. Uh, 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock yes. in the morning. Um, Emma, yes. just for the people that have never uh, watched your other webinar, just give us a little brief kind of background and then how you got into this topic. Okay, so my background is racehorses uh, and I, um, I came to Australia about 10 years ago and got back into horse racing, but with a view to, as that being a sort of side thing and I wanted to get qualified in, in doing a modality that helped them. And so I came across uh, craniosacral therapy at Equitana. They were doing a demo and that sort of set my journey. That was in 2011. And I then discovered biodynamic craniosacral therapy or biodynamic osteopathy as a client. And that intrigued me because of its study of embryology and its orientation to the whole. It's very quantum physics. and I had some wonderful results as a client for that. And so I happened to go to the UK in 2015. I came across a school that did two-year training for it. And then I came back here and worked to save money and went back in 2017 to get a profit qualification. Graduated last year. And um, so I love it. I've heard of biodynamic, uh, yeah, that's the <laughs> <laughs> biodynamic farming, but I've never heard of yes. biodynamic so yes. okay can you explain that to me so the i because that's what i'd heard biodynamic eggs biodynamic farming i people were like were you just doing it are you doing craniosacral with the moon cycles it has nothing to do with that <laughs> yeah 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 um the term biodynamic can be attributed to living forces um Certainly, I think it came from the embryologist Eric Blechschmidt, who is a German dude who um, did some incredible body of work after the Second World War, maybe during the Second World War, dissecting thousands, literally thousands and thousands of embryos with micro dissecting tools. He um, be began to paint a picture of the first eight weeks of the embryo's development and um, it's very much a whole movement. It's not this happens and then this happens. It's all happening simultaneously. And he um, then uh, got all of these tiny, tiny dissections replicated into three-dimensional uh, figures, 80 centimeters, 3D, and they're still there 
in Germany at the University of Göttingen. So I went in 2015 to check it out. I rang them up and said, hey, can I come have a look at the collection? And um, they said yes. And I walked around not having a clue about this. Just had um, his book here. Uh-huh, that's the... basis of human yeah. anatomy, okay. Yeah, so that is one of the dissected embryos. Um, so these were then replicated to three-dimensional figures. And it was just incredible. It, they were, there was a whole room of them. I couldn't take any photos, but um, there's, a, there's a guy over here called Brian Freeman um, who lectures on Blechschmidt's work, and he actually translated this book and I've been able to watch his lectures and see him live. And he just spins everything you think you knew about anatomy on its head because it's, um, we're talking about living forces that are present throughout our lives, which is, it just fascinates me. If you think about um, time not existing, that that blueprint is always there. That's what we can always go back to. Okay, we've already headed into heady stuff here as time is not existing. <laughs> yeah, we could go down that road. And I was going to talk a bit about the biodynamic model, but I didn't want to sort of go over time. I mean, I can. Oh, we um, could do another webinar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have our topics for the next mind. one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But the idea is, is that um, if I could sort of give a tidbit of it, is that we are complete with before we begin. The, the, the thing about biodynamic craniosacral therapy that I love is this orientation to health. Always that health is there. Um, and the origin of the word health comes from the word whole. And we're never not whole. We might feel like throughout life that, you know, we feel fragmented because of life events. You know, this is humans and horses but the wholeness is always there. It's there when we come into the world, it's there when we leave the world. So we are complete before we begin. And um, so to focus and orient to the health, you know, especially for example, in the horse world, or even, you know, if a human if a person comes into my clinic and they've got this going on and that going on, but I'm gonna to orient to what is working, even if it's the tiniest bit. Because if you orient to that, it helps the things that aren't working start to work mm. that's probably the most basic thing you know it's fascinating because when i when i teach which i haven't done in a while um writing that is it, it, you know i always found that um people would tell me all these stories but i would see what their potential was and i think yes. that that's one of the things that i i cut yes. through all that stuff and i can see what they can do I don't, yes. I don't know that other people see things that way. That's just always the way I've taught writing that as far back as I can remember is that that's very I, important. Yeah. When I look at a horse or I look at a person, I see what they can do and the things that they don't know, mm -hmm. simply get education, what they don't know to be the rider that I see. Mm. That's exactly it. That's not kind of, your orienting to health. Yep. Um, it, it's for example, if you know, maybe I see a horse and it's got a huge, this horse has a huge history and this is wrong and that's wrong and this person's seen it and that person's seen it and the horse almost feels like they're fragmented. Right. And so 
I almost, I will say to the owner, and uh, let's look at what's working. Let's look at what's right, you know. And it, it is a bit of a brain, a, you have to kind of turn your brain thinking around for some, you know, okay. And you know that there's potential, exactly what you said. It's what the osteopaths teach. So that's, where's that potential? Can this part breathe a little more? Can it open up a bit more? So it's very much, yeah. It's also Dr. Feldenkrais mm -hmm. very much had that uh, in mm -hmm. mind. He always was looking at uh, someone, uh, how one could achieve one's potential. Um, yeah. And so that oh, was always something that you heard in the Feldenkrais world is to make the impossible possible, the possible easy and the easy elegant. And he has a book called The Potent Self, which was about... Ooh. You know, but yeah, that it's not easy read. <laughs> None of his stuff uh, is an easy read. It's like you read a page and you chew on it for a while and you read another. <laughs> um, but Linda, I can remember when I first met Linda Tellington Jones and she would look at a horse and a person would explain all these problems and she'd go, oh, isn't that interesting? And when mm -hmm. I first started with her, I thought she was nuts and that, what do you mean it's interesting? Look at all these problems. But I finally <laughs> understood it, right? Yeah. And it's the... It's the curiosity about it mm. as opposed to the limit. And that's so much from, mm. you know, from the Feldenkrais philosophy of just because there are all, all these labels mm. um, that we have to look at the, the potential, what's really underlying. What, um, I, think that, I think that's why so many of these webinars keep coming back to this concept. Like Feldenkrais said the he that health is the ability to recover. It's not that you're not, yeah. something's not going to happen to you, but can you recover from that? And when you can't recover, you're unhealthy, yeah. right? And so yeah. that would go back to that our, our original, our origin, mm -hmm. that if we can reignite the origin, we can be whole and healthy. There you go. You just, the, the term ignition is something ah. that happens throughout. Yeah, birth ignition, conception ignition, heart ignition. These can all be reignited. And just as you said, it's so it's limiting to put a finality on what's presented in front of you. Um, it's I will assess a horse or, or listen to a human's um, history and go, OK, that's interesting. That's a story. Right. What's underneath it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting how many people get caught up in this in the story itself. Yeah. And also how we allow other people to limit us. You know, it's kind yeah. of the white coat syndrome, um, more more so in my mother's generation, where someone if someone gave you a sentence of this is how it is, you just accept it. But I think oh, yeah. now we we've realized, wait a second, just because that person is wanting to limit us um, doesn't mean that we should accept that limitation that they are imposing on us. Yeah. I, it's yes for example everyone so, so certain people see me just as a certain person in a certain way and I think well that's I can't change their perception but I know what I can do you know like that yes I love it it's a great philosophy and it's a it's a philosophy moving forward and it's evolving out of like you said maybe something of 10 50, 20 years ago it's fantastic or longer yeah I mean or longer yeah, yeah. cool okay. all right so, All right. so um, what I was going to do is talk a little bit about um, gastrulation, <laughs> which I think Blechschmidt um, doesn't sort of like to put that term towards human embryology, but I'm going to use it because 
um, of, it's just across all animals. Gra gastrulation is basically the, the formation of another layer of cells in the embryonic disc. <clears throat> so okay. I'll talk a little bit about that. That's basically the formation of fascia. Okay. So you're going to take and, us right from the beginning, right? Like, yeah, we're going to touch a little bit on how the spine evolves and, okay. and fascia, and that will lead us on to the sphenoid. And then if everyone's still alive by then, <laughs> we'll talk I know about that. I will be if no one else. Hold on. <laughs> okay, so should I put my PowerPoint up? Yes. Yeah. Yep. All right, so I just need to ooh, get out of that. Oh, hang on, I need to go into share screen, don't I? Yep. Ah, here we go. I remember now. Got it. it. Got it. Awesome. On current slide. Yep. Here we go. So this is just a nice little picture of a couple of embryos. This one on the left here is um, a horse, 10 days. And the one on the right is, I think, in around 30 days, perhaps a bit more. Looks quite similar to us. Differentiation starts to occur once that um, third layer comes in and once the spine starts to form. Um, I've put this picture up because I'm going to describe a little bit about um, what the biodynamic embryology talks about, its philosophy. So I think a lot of biologists would say that cell changes come from within, um, but the idea of the biodynamic craniosacral therapy is that the there are fluid forces changing things from the outside so it's quite incredible so these are just nice pictures of how water how fluid can change shape so that's almost a toroid, toroidal structure there um so um basically Another thing that fascinated me about the biodynamic embryology concept was that obviously there are so many more things that happen during the development of the embryo that precede genetics, that the genes go, okay, you're gonna have blue eyes and brown hair and this kind of bone. And, but the, everything else, the structure and the formation and the shaping and, and the timing is from this intelligence within the fluids that form the embryo. So, I mean, we're basically made of a lot of water. Mm. And then as we get older, we turn into bags of water with anxiety. <laughs> Pretty much. And then our, our, our journey is to try and like ease that. <laughs> so we're going to go straight into a little video here. Um, and we're going to kind of, there's a lot going on in embryology. It's really heavy. It can be quite heavy stuff and hard to get your head around. So I'm going to try and explain it best I can. If anyone has a question, please let me know. Basically, we start as obviously we're, we are whole before we begin. We're whole as the conceptus, which is the fertilized egg, the zygote. We become a two layer disc, which is epiblast and hypoblast. Gastrulation starts to happen when the cells start to move and form what we call the primitive streak. So, so the I'm definition just, of gastrulation, that's a kind of a big yeah. word. Gastrulation, 
Now, I had it here somewhere. It's basically the forming of another cell layer within the two cell layers. Okay, so you have you have yes. a zygote, then yeah. you have two layers, and yeah. then you start to form more layers. Yes, yeah, so I will um, explain it to you here. So, yeah, by folding, the gastrulation occurs. It occurs in the development of all animals. Um, so it basically, at two weeks, the embryo is the two layers, and then the bilaminar disc gets converted into a trilaminar disc. And again, the, the word disc is a bit misleading. It's like we're just a little flat pancake because we're actually not. We're moving and morphing all the time. And this whole idea of gastrulation is, it, you can imagine the embryo is kind of doing this. It's quite incredible. So what I'm gonna do is I'll show you this movie so you can get an idea of what's happening. Okay. So you can see the cells moving. Imagine fluid moving. See that line coming up at the tail end starting to form. You can see my pointer, probably not. There it is. There's your pointer. Yeah. So here it is. Here's the primitive streak. Is the outside of the embryo. Isn't that incredible? And what so is that primitive streak? That primitive streak is um, basically, it's if you can imagine it's kind of like Niagara Falls, it kind of forms a line from the tail end, midway up the embryo, and the cells start to fall in, a bit like Niagara Falls, okay? But that primitive streak has another um, kind of a role, and that is that it starts to give laterality to the embryo and a back and a front. So if you can imagine from your rump, there's a line coming halfway up to maybe where your belly button is, and that's the primitive streak. And that precedes what we call the notochord, the neural groove, the neural tube, the spine. Okay, so so I you know I've always talked about the blastomere, which is a which is a sort of a clump of cells. Yes, that's the that's before what we're talking now. Yeah. Okay, and that the that blastomere, I always thought of it as involuting, to form a tube. Are we talking about the same thing? Yeah, yeah. Except we're now we're now on this um, trilaminar disc, so the involution is happening. Um, the blastomere is is now transformed if you can imagine like you know how a, a space rocket starts to let go of things right. and transform into something else here's another um i put this quote up here called it's not birth marriage or death but gastrulation which is probably the most important time in your life um yes because if you're not gastrulating then you're not here <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't formed your fascia <laughs> okay so that's that's actually what where we're heading then is is I always think of um, uh, that, you know, with the blastomere, you're forming a tube and that tube is your, from your mouth to your anus, right? Your gut tube, right? The but gut you're tube. talking about a different, yes. this streak is something different and it's where Correct. we're getting our fascia from, if, if I understand you correctly. Yes, yes. So I've, I've been very fortunate to attend um, a number of different embryological lectures. Brian Freeman talks very much about the anatomy <clears throat> based on Blechschmidt's work. And then there's this amazing Dutch man called Jupp, 
van der Waal, who brings speech and movement to the embryo and he calls himself an embryosophy, the philosophy of embryology. So you can imagine this, this uh, point here, this is a very um, computer animated version of what we're gonna see here. That's the primitive node. That is like a pit. It's, imagine it's kind of like a black hole. And in, and Yap would say it's the entry point of the soul. And here we go. And then the fascia is now forming the middle layer of the embryo. And it's called the mesoderm. Oh, meso I remember that word. Mesoderm, yes. Ectoderm, so mesoderm, and endoderm, right? Are three Brilliant. Layers. There we go. It's coming so back. The, the, blue, <laughs> the blue layer on this, on this picture is called the ectoderm. The, I think that's orangey type layer is endoderm. And we're going to have see the mesoderm form in the middle of this embryo. And the meso is, you can, if you look at the translation, is mediator, middle layer. And that to me is what fascia does. It mediates everything. And from a, like a spiritual level, <clears throat> it's the entry point of the soul. And I've heard some crazy stories about, you know, kids. I'll tell you one story. It was actually one of my teachers was driving his daughter. She was in the back of the car. She was about three or four. And he pointed out a house to her and said, Look, that's where mummy and I lived when you were, um, when you weren't born yet, or when you were in mummy's tummy or something. And she said, no, I, I remember. And I remember that place. I remember being there. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and he said, what else do you remember? He said, she said, I was in the sky and I heard a bell and then I landed in mummy's tummy. And he nearly crashed the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there is some level of consciousness is retained for some people. I've heard some amazing stories where, you know, kids will say, I chose you, or I remember hearing something and then I was inside mommy's tummy or whatever. So that's when me... I have this gin and tonic with me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you, I hope you've got a good barman over there. <laughs> So I'm going to play this movie. So this is, um, again, you've got to remember this is very flat. It's not exactly how it would actually look. Um, but this will give you an idea of kind of what happens. Where's my play button? Here we go. So now we're going to cut that section in half. So there's that primitive streak. And the cells are moving up and through and inside see that mm -hmm. and that pink those pink cells are now called the mesoderm that's the middle layer okay so so you have egg and sperm collide forms a zygote starts to divide starts creating cells that's what I'm, you know going back to yep. my embryology of the 70s okay <laughs> it's great um, <laughs> You got all these cells dividing, it forms a blastomere, which is basically a puddle of, of a sort of a sphere of cells, as I remember. A sphere, yeah, yeah. Okay, that sphere starts to, to form this primitive streak. Mm -hmm. And then as it forms this primitive streak, we start to get the differentiation of the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm. That yes, so that primitive streak forms. Yeah, if you can imagine, if you're even 
had any consciousness of that time. Imagine like you were, hey, I'm a two-layer disc and now, oh my God, what's happening? It would feel like that. You feel like you were in a washing machine. Quite incredible. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Pam. I got an A plus from Wendy. I mean, from Pam. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, Wendy. Pulling up, pulling up stuff from a while ago, okay? <laughs> so this is just a, sum, um, a summary. So at around 14, 16 days, this occurs. I spoke with Yap because um, obviously I study, you know, equine, craniosacral, and I said, is this process the same for horses? He said, for most mammals, until differentiation occurs, which will be at around... 14 to 16 days when basically what was that <clears throat> cell cluster and now goes I'm going to be a horse or I'm going to be a duck or I'm going to be a human or a frog differentiation um, so out of the two layers comes a third layer which um, I mentioned the entry point of the soul which you know you don't have to believe that at all but I like it um, because Dr. Still the founder of osteopathy talked about fascia as the dwelling, the place where the man soul dwelled. And I really like that, that link. And just as you mentioned, Wendy, at two weeks, the embryo consists of two layers, epi and hypoblast, the morphing of the embryo with the formation of the primitive node and primitive streak transform a two layered disc or conceptors into a three layered disc through a migration of cells. This is fluid dynamics. So if you can imagine injecting a red dye fluid into water, you'd see the shape. <clears throat> so how fluid creates shape and form. And what we're orienting to in biodynamic is that force within the fluid that's doing all that. Well, so, in the dynamics, the uh, fluid dynamics are interesting in of themselves, even if there's not correct. a light force in them in terms of tensegrity and just yeah. way fluid works. So, you know, we're not going to go down that path because I, I, I just know that it's a, it's fascinating. It is. Fluids it have is. their own sort of properties. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that this is what Blechschmidt started to talk about. He, cause he was trying to describe fluid dynamics. He described them as metabolic fields where you'll start to get um, densation fields and, um, other pressure fields, how water can be drawn or pushed together or stretched. And that would then um, tell the cell where it's, what it's going to be, what it's going to become and where it's going to go. So it's very interesting. Um, and just as I mentioned, gastrulation gives a left, right laterality by initiating a process that will give, cleave your back in the midline from the caudal towards the cephalic region. And that's this guy, Philip Beach, muscles and meridians. So he talks about contractile fields. Cool. Um, in the embryo. Um, yeah, very cool. Uh, so obviously you've got the outer layer, ectoderm, middle layer, mesoderm, the fascia, which is the bone, the blood, the muscle, and um, it's the mediator. And here's some quotes on fascia by Andrew Taylor still. The soul of man with all the streams of pure living water seems to dwell in the fascia of his body. All nerves go to and terminate in that great system, the fascia. This connecting substance must be free at all parts to receive and discharge all fluids and use them in sustaining animal life and eject all impurities that health may not be impaired by dead 
and poisonous fluids. By its action, we live, and by its failure, we die. And you know, there's been some great webinars you've done where your your speakers have talked on fascia and the importance of moving and retraining it and stretching it. And I feel with the sure foot pads, fascia's there, you know, all the time. That moving, I almost feel like, you know, there's fluid happening, fluid dynamics are happening when they're on the pads. Yeah, that, and you know, we're, we've never been able to uh, give a, a reason for the swaying. I mean, the, everybody's tried from their own perspective, but obviously mm -hmm. when those horses are swaying on the pads, there's movement. And if there's movement, there's gotta be fluid movement. And it, it, it's, a, it's one of the phenomena that I find so curious and interesting. And it's, I think the thing we understand the least. Yes. Why they sway, how they sway, how much they sway. Um, but you see these horses kind of get into this rhythm and you'll see, uh, I've seen up to three different sway patterns in a horse. I don't think I've seen okay. more than three, um, but typically there's a primary and a secondary. That's amazing. I, I also think my, my feeling was that <clears throat> as a, if I was a quadruped, it would feel completely different than being a biped on the pads mm -hmm. and possibly better because my frontal prefrontal cortex Cortex isn't getting in going, oh, I'm swaying. They just right. go, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's my simple version of it. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's, um, it, but it is fascinating. Yeah. It is. It is fascinating. And um, I just feel that, you know, there's, if the soul is in the fascia, there's just so much, you know, that enables movement, you know. Anyway, um, we're now going to talk about somites. Um, and differentiation. So um, we need somites. They are formed from mesoderm. I'm just going to get my little notes here. Here we go. So um, basically, after we've got the primitive street, we have something called a notochord, which is present in all vertebrates. And um, if you love fossils, they, you know, the first notochord fossil with a notochord was discovered. It was like 500 million years old. Fossil record. And it, it basically, no, go on. Can you point out the notochord here in your picture? Uh, I've got it in that other one, but I That's haven't okay. got it. Just go let me just, um, I didn't know. Basically, if you can imagine the notochord lies, it will lie um, underneath the neural tube, which is the spinal cord. Basically, so it basically, you know how we have the line of the primal, the primitive streak, mm -hmm. and then the notochord arises as a cephalic continuation of the primitive pit. So from the middle, it starts to come forward to the head. Basically, it kind of like, if you can imagine like you're drawing a scaffolding of a building and you have your, your drawing, okay, that's there. That's like your pre-building um, picture. That is like the scaffolding. The notochord is really important because it's basically what we call um, an inductive or an induction system. It basically um, induces the germ layers to become what they need to become. It's kind of like a guideline, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so yeah. basically it's sort of like uh, if you were to draw a line map and say, go mm -hmm. here. Yeah. The notochord is like saying, okay, you guys, as you're traveling along, go here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
yeah, it's kind of like go to the notochord, it'll tell you what to do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was a really good description, Wendy. Thank you. Um, so basically, this is around day 16 to 31. Dorsal to the notochord lies the central nervous system, so above. Um, ventral to the notochordal lie the gut and heart tubes. This is really important. So the nervous system's on top, the gut and heart tube is below. And those look to the notochord for information and where to go and how to form. Um, what's even really cool is the remnants of the notochord are within the nucleus pulposus of the intervertebral discs. More so, I think, in humans than horses, but it's still there. So the remnants of the notochord are actually within our discs. Yes, right in the center. Okay, Th this leads me on a path that I probably should not mention, but what happens when we damage a disc and we mess up that little piece of notochord that knew what everything belonged to? Uh, well, if you can, it's still there, you know, even if the remnants are there, you know, the, that's what I'm talking about. That blueprint's still there. But, you know, from a, say, a dissecting point of view, actually, I have quoted that paper but from 2019 that does look at um, intervertebral disc damage and degeneration in horses. Um, it's there in horses, it's more cartilaginous, but it can obviously get damaged because of the, you know, the pressures that horses can be um, Yeah, we're sitting on their back. To. Yeah, we're sitting on their back. They're falling over. <laughs> yeah. um, can you go back one slide? Cause I'm, I'm not sure I- Yes. How do I go back? Just go to, your, to go. your little- there Oh you go. yeah, here we go. There we go. Okay. Right. So, so in this picture here, you've got on the right-hand side, this is yes. our embryo. Yes. So up here is the back. Here's the head. Got it. Yep. There's the heart. This will form um, parts of the face and the hyoid. Yep. So isn't that cool that we have our face hidden behind the heart and our brain almost touches the heart in our embryological growth? It's very, that's a whole other webinar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so here, here you've got um, basically your, your guts um, basically develop outside of you around here and then they fold and come back in. Here's your tail. Here are these little blocks, building blocks called the somites, okay? Um, they're basically coming out of mesoderm and I think I've, I've got some more points, but I'll, I'll go on the next couple of slides because I can okay. read them out to you. And our picture on the left, I just yes. I'm trying to figure that one out. So the picture on the right, you can imagine the embryo is kind of lying like that. Here's yep. the back, there's the front. The picture yep. on the left, the embryo is like that. Ah. Okay. And here's the back going up here. And this is still the head end that hasn't zippered up, if you can imagine. Okay. So that's basically your early brain. You can imagine those somites act like a zipper. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they actually start, this is the cool, really cool. They start, they don't start at the tail end or the head end. They start in the middle, literally um, adjacent to where your belly button is. And they zip up and move down. So here's your belly button. They start at the back there and they kind of go zip. Oh, okay. 
So somebody's asked, is, is the notochord then ultimately absorbed into the spinal cord when the formation process is complete? It does seem to be, yeah. It seems to be that they've got that remnant there. Um, I wouldn't like to answer definitively because even getting through Bletchmitt's book is a bit like um, <laughs> Feldenkrais's book where you read a page and then you have to take a Panadol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I'll, um, here we go, the somites. We're going to talk about those little building blocks. Um, so they're blocks of mesoderm. See the importance of the mesoderm. Are precursor populations of cells that give rise to important structures associated with the vertebrate body plan. So the somites aren't just the vertebrae of the spinal column. They are the ligaments. They're the tendons. They're the... Um, intervertebral muscles as well so when you're on the spine for example if you're working on the spine you're working on everything that the somite was which is just is like the cybernetic muscles of the spine it's the ligamentous sock that the spine is wrapped around the fascia it's everything they differentiate into myotomes <coughs> sclerotomes which i haven't spelt right and syndotomes, the sclerotome is the actual vertebrae. What we call in biodynamic work the embryological triad. So you're not just dealing with, we try and always think about the whole that's come into our hands. <clears throat> For example, if I'm on a spinal vertebrae, I'm not just thinking about the vertebrae, I'm thinking about everything associated with that. That makes sense. Um, when the somite is still in early development, it's multipotent. Each of its cells can become any one of the somite-derived structures, which I love. And that's, that goes with all the cells. It's a very human thing to go, mesoderm does this, endoderm does that, ectoderm does that. <clears throat> As um, Brian Freeman said, the embryo has not read an embryology, embryology textbook. The embryo will use whatever it needs to use. And any of those cells can become anything. For example, the sphenoid bone isn't just made out of mesoderm. It's also got neurocrest cells in it, and it has some endoderm. So it kind of it's. I would use these um, the three-layered disc as a map, but a bit like everything, there's a crossover of all of those layers to create the form. If that makes sense. You, you really, really quickly start to realize just how complex <laughs> we are and yeah. how amazing it is that this has been worked out to create horses, dogs, and cats. Oh, I know. Oh, you know, my the, God. Yeah. yeah that's... When, you, when you start to realize the intense complexity and also, <laughs> you know, like as we do more research into stem cells, we start to realize there's so much more possibility um mm. they were designed by aliens i think you're right bam <laughs> <laughs> yeah because there's because it really is yeah there's so much possibility and um it's you know when you think of the if you ever did the math of the potential for error you oh. know, and then look at the fact that we exist it just starts to get overwhelming anyway cool onward it really is and and it and that's that you just touched on something that 
um, is so important in early development. So I attended a, a lecture on tongue, tongue tie, not horse tongue ties, but human tongue ties, um, torticollis, I think it's called. And it was an embryology lecture on how that would happen. What happens when, so basically at around eight weeks, the tongue is attached to the floor of the mouth and it through, it starts to separate. Uh -huh. So you can lift your tongue up and tongue tie is when it doesn't separate fully. And so somebody put their hand up and asked the lecturer, why would this happen in embryology, embryological growth? What would cause it now? Because it, just as you said, it's so complex and the timing is so exact that at some point, maybe the head end didn't grow down far enough to bring the cranial base down, to bring the heart down, to induce that separation. Yeah. It's just so exact. It's incredible. Yeah, it's timing. like if, if the spine, if the somites don't form fully, you get, um, what is it when someone's spine doesn't close properly? Spina bifida. That's it. Yeah. You get that. <clears throat> so it, it really is absolutely fascinating. How are you doing? Good. Good. I'm good. <laughs> I feel like I should put like a nice picture up or something and everyone and take a big breath. It's okay. <laughs> Ta -da! There. Oh, a nice Look picture. Look at that. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened to this person. Their boots are there, but they disappeared. Oh, wow. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it actually looks like someone just shot off, doesn't it? It's an alien. That's yeah. what Sam was talking about is an alien. <laughs> so I, is everyone sort of okay with how um, we got the, we have the primitive node, we have the, the node accord, we have the neural tube starts to form, the somites are forming, and there you've got this building block coming up and forming the spine all the way to the sphenoid, which we're going to touch on now. Yeah, this photo, this photo I took, um, obviously, while we we're still in lockdown, um, everyone's on the pads. And I was just getting these people to do the exercise, which is going to lead us on phenoid. Um, <clears throat> so if anyone has any pads at home. <laughs> oh, rats. Oh, yes, I do. I have them over in the other room. Okay. Okay. Um, shall I I'll put it here? Is everyone ready? Yep. But this is, I'm just going to put this here so I can read it. So um, I took this, it's kind of uh, taken a little bit from Hugh Milne's book, who talks about the sphenoid and the importance of head and neck movement. And then I linked it to the horses. So if you stand, it's um, standing on the pads, you take a few deep breaths and let your exhalation breath take your attention to your feet. You can do this without pads, you can just stand up and do it at home. And notice your feet on the pads or on the ground and just look straight ahead with a soft gaze. And then you turn your head to the left and notice without trying to change anything, whether your weight distribution changes on either side of your feet. Now rotate your head to the right and notice again. Bring your head back to center and take a few slow breaths as in the beginning. So on your exhalation breath, you come down and bring your attention to the feet. <clears throat> now rotate your jaw only your jaw to the left and then to your right, noticing any weight distribution changes through your feet. Take a couple more easy breaths and feel your feet. 
Now we'll just move your eyes to the left and back to center. And then move your eyes to the right and back to center. And you notice any weight shifts through your feet. It's very easy for us to try and correct, but try not to correct. Just notice and go, oh, don't. It's, <laughs> you know, some, I was doing it with some people and they, as soon as they move their eyes, their body swayed backwards and they freaked out and tried to rebalance, you know. But um, yeah. I've noticed that with some horses, actually. Horses that feel pretty good, you can see them turning while they're on the pads, you know, doing that. And horses that, especially some of the racehorses, they'll stand on them and they're like, I'm just not going to move. I'm just going to stand on these. So it's, it's interesting. This is, this is um, just reading the way you've written it. It's so the way a Feldenkrais awareness from movement yes. lesson would be presented um, in yes. terms of noticing and feeling and then doing very small movements. And of course, yeah. the, the breath, the eyes, the jaw, and the head are like super powerful, so, incredible things. To mess, eye lessons are really, you have to do so little, it's so powerful. So this is awesome, I'm gonna definitely, I have a Surefoot week workshop this weekend and I am gonna do this with my Oh, I'll do it. I mean, and it, it, it's the same for horses and humans. We, I mean, human takes us back to our ancestors where we need to be head up, we need to turn, and we need to move, be ready to move. Right. Okay, so all of that works in synchrony and if you think about the spine, how it goes all the way up to your sphenoid, which I'm going to touch on, everything needs to move. And if there are problems in the eye muscles or the neck muscles, uh, it's the same with horses. They need to, you know, when they need to, oh, what's that? I'm going to telescope my neck up. And when they're running, they need to, they do this. You know, just, is that still behind me? You know, unless they're in a big herd and someone's going, we're all going as a one, you know. So this is, uh, some of it's taken from Humil. The eyes and neck are deeply connected. The main evolutionary reason for the existence of the neck is to give our eyes greater scope. All but one of the muscles that move the eyes attached to the sphenoid. Wow. The cranium. All but one of the muscles from the eyes attached yeah. to the sphenoid? Yep. Wow. They all go through it. There's, it, it gets, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, have a drink. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so often you know if, if I have somebody lying on the table I might ask them just to look at me from one side and then I'll move to the other side of the table and ask them to look and sometimes you can see there's more eye movement to one side than the other is that and often they're complaining of neck pain because the the neck muscles and the eye muscles are so intricately connected because we're like okay and you know how Feldenkrais teaches you to try and move your whole body when you turn, but we just go, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, we spend a lot of our time looking at computers. So our, our gaze is very uh, limited and that can also create tension in those muscles. We're not using the lateral gaze muscles so much. I'll actually do a computer exercise for everyone in a minute. But somebody from... Um, Pittsburgh showed me. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. So the sphenoid articulates with the occiput, and I'll show you some diagrams on that, connected by a synchondrosis joint, which is like that, which is basically like your intervertebral disc. It's like disc, disc. 
at birth has the remnants of that intervertebral disc, it's cartilaginous and the nucleic notochord. So that's inside your head. The sphenoid and occiput are part of the spine and of the embryological triads, which are the somites that form not just the vertebrae, but the ligaments, tendons, fascia and muscles. So I think um, it, it might've been Gillian Kreinbring who mentioned Manolo Mendes, you think of the head as the spine. Well, he's absolutely right because the spine C1 is actually the sphenoid almost. That's the beginning of your spine. As the eyes begin to move, the sphenoid and the whole body begin to respond. So you turn and you turn. Do I need to run? You know. Another example, if we're threatened or become aggressive, we may pronate our jaw like that. Oh. We're stressed. The powerful muscle which we do that originates from the sphenoid. You think the pterygoids that move your jaw laterally, they're inside the jaw, they attach to the pterygoid processes of the sphenoid. I hope you're going to have a picture of a sphenoid next. Oh, I've got loads. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> There's one. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. And I'm also going to get one. So here, I'm oh. actually, we'll talk about this and then I'll, and then I'll take this and then you okay. can put me on the big screen. Got it. So um, this is, uh, the best way, if you can't do um, lots of dissections, which I don't have, because I'm in the suburbs, I don't really get to do a lot of dissections. I try to, is to draw the bones. And uh, so this is a drawing of the sphenoid. It has its origins in vertebrae. So it basically was two vertebrae. It's now becomes one. It used to be two vertebrae. Um, obviously the notochord, the midline, the spine, the nucleus pulposus, we talked about that. That is, in this part here, this is, where's my thing? That part there is what the occiput will attach to. And in between that at birth is the intervertebral disc or the remnants of it. That's the sphenobasilar junction. Okay, this, okay. this might sound weird, but that drawing to me looks like sacrum and pelvis in your head. Yeah, it doesn't sound weird at all because um, Obviously, the face will fit into the pelvis. It's, they're very interconnected. If you think of um, an inverted mirror or something like that. Yeah, because it's got Absolutely. the same sort of bowl shape. It's got the center mm -hmm. where the, you know, the sacral shape right there. Yeah. The, the um, equine sphenoid is quite different. But it will, um, should we put it on the yeah, biggest screen? Yeah, unshare your screen. Um, how do I do? Stop share, do I? Stop share. Okay. Then I'll just spotlight you. Uh-oh. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Big screen. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'll just um, get this skull here so you can see it rather than looking at it. You see um, here is the back of the sphenoid there that forms the rear socket of the eye. Okay. And here is uh, the superior orbital fissure. I'll go over what nerves go through that. Okay, I'm gonna take it apart now. But basically, you can we can palpate our sphenoid from here. Okay, so here, that's your wing, your greater wing. You know when you have a headache and you're like, oh yeah, that's your greater wing there. And look how it articulates with every bone of the cranium. Absolutely every bone. It's like the keystone of a bridge. Okay, I'm gonna take it apart. Okay. 
makes me sad because it takes me forever to get this skull back together again. <laughs> it's your Rubik's cube. It really is. It really is. Okay, here it is. Wow. Okay, so that's a so wingy. It's like a bat, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a bat. So this is that's the rear of my eyes. That's my eye socket there. Okay. These little bits, we've got the pterygoid processes here where you've got your jaw muscles attaching to and um, the palatines, which is a whole other webinar in itself. They articulate here. And here is the occiput, which is also a vertebrae. It's from the same somites as the vertebrae. So this, was, this is now a, an evolved vertebrae. Okay, and it attaches like that. Now you're looking at this side on, like that. So okay. occiput, sphenoid, like that. Okay. And here, so it's kind of like vertebrae, vertebrae, intervertebral disc here. Incredible. Cool, so our cell mites, yeah. they just kept on going forward and created yeah. These, these structures, which we tend to think of as the skull, but really are more spine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Forming the cranial base. So, you know, this, this is actually in three parts at birth, and so is this. But I don't mean three parts just floating around. They're three parts and they're attached. Cartilaginous, right. but it's the same in the horse as well. And I've actually got a false sphenoid. Um, photos, which, which will kind of give you an idea of how it looks in a horse too. Yeah, because their shape is a bit different from ours. The horse sphenoid, it's very different. This is a very old skull. I actually got from Skulls Unlimited in America. <laughs> so it's, it was actually shipped over. So all of the uh, sutures had to be kind of sanded down. But basically this here, oh, hang on. Is that joint there? Okay. Okay. You've got to imagine everything's elongated in the horse. Right. Here's the rear of the eye here, right? So that's, and here's obviously the occiput, that's in three parts. And that would be in three parts. That's really, really important. You know, foals have had, um, you know, if mums had foals standing up, and they crashed on their pretty head. Pretty traumatic. We can have problems through here. So the sphenoid is really in a in a uh, adult equine skull. Mm. It's calcified basically into this the what we think of as the skull structure. Like it's not. It, yeah. So I think in ours it's a little more identified, a little bit more separate. Or it does seem to be. I mean, this looks quite ossified, but um, there is movement. There has to be movement. Um, if there isn't movement here, either in horse or human, we've got some serious problems that can lead to, um, like some serious psychological problems as well. It's really because it forms, it's like, uh, the, the inside of your mind where you're seeing out, if that can't move and, and breathe properly, you can get anything from pituitary gland dysfunction. I'll touch on that to feelings of, um, depression. Um, that's what's been noted, or feelings of just not quite feeling connected, headache, really bad headaches. 
But when so we think of the movement, it's more like the sacral mo movement. It's not a huge movement. No, tiny movement. Right. But if you can imagine, certainly in the human skull, that the breathing is kind of like the opening and closing of a flower. So Pam, Pam Eckelberger just said that they have skull bones from a full-term stillborn that she can wow. Yeah. So yeah. You're going to have to watch. You're going to have to get up early. I am. <laughs> I will, Pam. <laughs> The idea of the movement in the human. So imagine, okay, I'm going to tip this forward like it's a horse skull, a horse sphenoid, because that's pretty much how it sits on the horse. There's the occiput, here's the sphenoid. That has to move very slightly, inhalation and exhalation, that tiny cranial motion. Okay. Okay. Cranial motion is really important. It's, and when we're talking microns, of movement. If you'd imagine a sheet of paper, how thick that is, it's even thinner than that, the movement. The reason that craniosacral therapies can perceive that movement is because we get into a very still, almost meditative state, and that takes um, a lot of practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's about reducing so, the, the effort so that you can pick up the really subtle things. Yeah. It's, it's like, if you can imagine that we're polyrhythmic beings, you know, we've got your heart rate and your breathing and your pulse, and then you have your cranial rhythm. And then in that, you've got even slower rhythms that the biodynamic people orient to as well. The slower rhythms are what interests me the most because they're very stable. And that's what I want to orient the organism to, whether it's horse or human, because that stability helps them really connect to their own source, if that makes sense. Okay. So should we actually label, I mean, this is kind of off the wall, but label the occiput and the sphenoid as zero and zero, zero? Because we I don't know. Fine, start I think that one. <laughs> Maybe that's going to, um, I mean, you, I don't know. I, I, I think because they're, they've got their own names in their own right. But I like to think that, you know, um, if this is out of whack, is the pelvis out of whack? you know, or if this is that, you know, is the pelvis or the sacrum is stuck, this will be stuck. Right. Because it's all connected. It's all one long tube, all the somites, they all talk. Remember how they're so interconnected with everything else? And there, and the sphenoid is the first. In other words, there is no somite that you would find in cranial to the sphenoid. It's number one. Well, zero. Yeah. Zero, zero. <laughs> Yes, okay. there are no more. Well, I hope not. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a really interesting way to think about it because you know hmm. we 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 want to. So many people want to like define the spine as this is your neck, right? And it's yeah. still the C seven. But you know, from my Feldenkrais training, you know, when I would say where does your neck begin, and people would go, oh, right here. It's like no, it's beginning no. all the way at the other end. You know, I mean, it's a, it's yeah. a whole chain, interrelated chain that you can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. So it's beginning here. Yeah. Going all yeah. the way down. Really all up all higher. Down. Yeah. And if the occiput is really got that intervertebral disc connecting to the sphenoid, then, then the, the more we can think of the sort of whole of it, it, mm -hmm. it just shifts the perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. Um, because I'll, I'll always check 
um, the eye level of the horse. And although I won't go, oh, okay, it could be a sphenoid problem, it could be a temporal problem. So remember, everything is so connected. Um, but it's kind of what's going on at the back that might influence the front. Is there something going on in the middle? Is there a torque in the rib cage and the thoracic sling that's also causing a twist up to the head? I mean, my eye level, I don't even, sometimes yeah. it's like that because I have um, slight uh, mechanical scoliosis. So I get my sacrum looked at and then my eyes level out. And there, and there is no perfectly uh, perfect person. I mean, one of, no. one of the things that's so fun is to just simply take your hand and split your face or look at a picture of yourself and you go, oh, that's wrong. That doesn't look like me because we're <laughs> looking at the mirror image, not the way people yes. see us, you know? So, um, yeah. you know, that asymmetry actually, uh, and I think we may talk about that tomorrow when we talk about where movement begins, you need a certain degree of asymmetry to even move. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the embryo, the embryo in, in its growth is completely asymmetrical. I wish I have got some photos somewhere. Um, but you know, it's twisting like this as it grows. Oh. It actually twists like this. Okay, so imagine it's growing, twisting like that all the time. It doesn't just sit there and go, here's an arm, here's a leg, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because that's just how we work. How I've never thought about it, but you're right. Yeah. You know, it doesn't just spring out there. <laughs> yeah. So it's moving all the time. If you can imagine, like it's pulsing all the time and it's twisting all the time. And then, of course, if you look at our organs, you know, our lungs are like there's two lobes and three lobes. We've got kidneys like this. We've got a heart sitting on the left side. You know. And two, yeah, the liver, yeah. two lobes on one and yeah. one on the other. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Tammy Al-Qayyam talked about the asymmetry. It's there. It's a story. If I'm looking at the sphenoid because I feel like there's head pain associated with this and it's affecting the horse's vision, it's a question I'll put out to the system. Where does this bone want to move? Is there primary respiration in this bone? Does it want to breathe? Can it breathe? Is there, going back to the potential, is there a potential for this bone to breathe? in a better way cool if that makes sense yeah <laughs> cool yeah so i thought i might go on to the um the uh, nerves that go through the eye so Let's i might do have it. To go back to my yeah how do i go share screen share screen great you know we, we movement is life life is movement without movement, absolutely we are not alive so all there is it's, to it it, it absolutely is, you know, and that's the philosophy of osteopathy. Um, where are we? Okay, sphenoid. No, that's it. There we so go. that's what we're looking at. Okay, the SBJ. Um, just another picture to get people's eyes on it. That's in the human. These are two, um, Sorry about my drawings, but these are basically two drawings of a uh, sphenoid at birth on the right, a human sphenoid and a uh, occiput at birth on the left. As you can see how it's in three parts here yep. on the occiput. Now that's, um, let me turn it around that way, yeah? So that's, that's in the three parts. Okay, that's another part, that's another part. The basilar part of the oh, wait, there, you Yeah, I had, okay. Unshare you your it? screen for a second so oh. we can see what you're doing. I couldn't see what you're doing because I was- Oh, sorry. I tried okay. to not interfere with the screen when, I, when you put it in big pictures. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, yes, yeah, so basically this 
is in it's sort of attached by cartilage and mesenchyme and the reason it's in three parts is to help the baby skull get through the canal yeah this okay. is a big problem if it can't get through yeah it is a big problem and um whether the birth was relatively easy um craniosacral therapies or cranial osteopathy is ideal to help any kind of compression through the canals that go here that might affect um, tongue function, suckling, reflex. Uh, they might have um, reflux as well. That can be the vagus nerve compression. Okay. So all of that really important to get that looked at. And of course, the skull, the bones at the top, as you know, overlap to enable the skull, the head to go through birth canal. We really are born so, premature. I mean, yeah. Think about it, right? Yeah. Because if we were born yeah. fully formed like a horse, we'd kill our mother. So yeah. we, yeah. you know, we have to be born at a stage where things are soft enough to be able to fit. Yeah, exactly. I'm just gonna um, go back to that. Can I go back to that? Okay. Yeah. Uh, where were we? Oh yes, here we go. So um, the sphenoid obviously also in two parts and that, when I first heard about that, you know, especially in the horse, I just thought, oh my goodness, that's huge. You know, how foals can be handled. I, don't, I've, I can't remember when it starts to fuse at the occiput and the, and the sphenoid in the horse. I think it's, you know, around one. Pam might know the know? answer to that. Pam, if you know the answer, to Pam? put it in the chat. <laughs> when does the occiput and the sphenoid start to fuse? In the horse. In yeah. the horse. Or at least when they start, because you know, when you think about a birth, birth issues, or the foal does a head over heels galloping around the paddock, you know how many times they were like, "Oh no, the birth was fine." Oh no, and then they um, fell over a fence, and you know the horse is like this, and yeah. you're like, "Oh, I was camera question. Highly okay. debated. Okay. Mm. Highly debated. Yeah. Yep. I just. You sort of have to think about all that anyway, because even if it has fused, the sutures are still very new and very open. I think sutures such as um, like this one, that ossifies in older horses, okay? But most of the other sutures will still have room to breathe. They have to. Otherwise, um, the importance of sutures can't be underestimated. Otherwise, our, our skull would explode into a million pieces if we had a fall. Oops. When you turn away, we can't hear you. There you go. Sorry. When it, it's very much a shock absorber, the sutures. Okay. Here is a uh, dorsal view of a foal sphenoid. Um, it looks quite different to this, doesn't it? It's yeah. much more elongated, as you saw in the um, skull. It's very much up inside. You know, here the rear, the rear part of the eyes is, let's say, this part here. Okay. Okay. This part here. That's this part here. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've got some better photos actually coming up. Here we go. Ventral view of a full skull. And I'd just like to thank Stephanie Shep for this photo. Stephanie's a craniosacral therapist in Northeast Vic. So she had a foal and she um, dissected and then cooked all the bones and this 
amazing. I was at a dissection, I got to kind of take photos of them. So as you can see, um, the basilar part of the occiput is not there. It was it was somewhere in that box here. But see how it just came apart? Yeah. Because it was still in three parts. You still very much see that beautiful joint there. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? See how the condylar parts of the occiput here are still very much in three. They're still very much only just attached. Yeah. Incredible. I've got some side views here. Um, this is the side view. Here we've got the rear of the eye here, the wing coming yep. up here. Okay. And on there, the wing. You can really see the sutures here as well. You see how much it would just move. Yep. How it would breathe very much like that. And then also on, have... on your left-hand picture there, mm. uh, you've got that very clear line. What, uh, um, here? Yeah. Yeah. What what's that? So that is the pre-sphenoid. Yeah. That would be here. And this bit that's missing is this bit up here. Okay. Right. That's what we call the pre-sphenoid bone. So because that's obviously the sphenoid, as we said, is still in three parts so the pre-sphenoid then marries to the main body of the sphenoid but that's incredible isn't it well i'm just thinking it's another vertebrae <laughs> you know yeah it's like <laughs> kind of looks like it's it. vertebrae Doesn't going it? all the way into the head <laughs> i know god i could be wrong pam help but but you know when you look at it when you look at it in a full like this and you look at how clear those lines are and that they look like distinct blocks it, it, you know, I, I keep thinking about John Zahorek, who's, um, he developed oh, yes. clay. Yes. He's a He's really incredible. interesting guy. And he has a theory on the cannon bone, that the cannon bone is actually the three fingers, you know, of the five toes, the three fused together. Oh, fused. When you look at a yeah. cannon bone, it has these very distinct lumps at the bottom and it has that curve. And, and then the splint bones would be the two side ones. Now, there's no way to prove that theory that I know of, but, you know, no. It's such an interesting theory and, and nature's so conservative that it makes a lot yes. of sense to me. And when I look at this, it makes a lot of sense to me that this would be somites that had migrated yes. all the way to the head. And while we think of them as the sphenoid bone, we're really looking at an extension of the vertebrae that would go all the way to the top. Yeah. Oh, that kind of makes sense about the cannon bone. Because I, yeah, doesn't I, it? I mean, it's yeah, just, I, feel I, I can't think of it any fused. other way anymore, you know, because it has that yeah. such a distinct curve to it and such distinct mm. um, condyles. And because it, it, like you said, it ties in with how the sphenoid was, you know, when we were just swimming in the ocean yeah. trillions of years ago, and then we started to move more upright or quadrupedal and that bone needed to start to form so we could see yeah, and form the rear socket of our... So it kind of didn't disappear. It became one, which was two. Yeah. Know. I mean, nature's so conservative. And that's the thing that John, mm. uh, that John taught me more than anything is that you have to look at, at systems and metameric chains, not just simply individuals. And, you know, he has a really interesting theory about the formation of the diaphragm where I've forgotten the name of the muscles now, but if you look at the, the ventral surface of the spine, you'll see a chain of muscles that ends around, I think it's around in humans around T7, 
58. Uh -huh. And then it reappears when you get down to the psoas. And so his theory is that the, that muscle that was along the spine in that mm. gap is actually the diaphragm that flapped forward. It left the spine and flapped forward and attached to the Amazing. Right. And it makes sense from a conservative yeah. perspective because nature doesn't just create something out of nothing. Nature always in, in evolution in terms of, in, at least as far as I'm concerned, in terms of looking yeah. at muscle and skeleton, it's going to adapt something to another task. It's going to say, oh, oh I need yeah. this somewhere else, you know, and like the hoof yeah. is, um, I was just recently doing some research, you know, the, the hoof became a hoof because of the weight and elongation of the cannon bone, right? It's like the other hoof left the ground. And so it, it again, it's, it's an evolutionary, I'm going off on tangents here. But. Oh, it, it's <laughs> perfect because it's form follows function. Yeah. And when I look yeah. at these pictures, I see vertebrae that, have have essentially solidified into what into what we call a different idea but is yeah. actually still serving in that function like when you put up that picture of the spino i was like oh my goodness this looks like a pelvis to me yeah so it was like it's our and actually pelvis. these yeah these parts were um transverse processes of the spine they right. used to be and now and they're like well we're gonna almost bowl like shape yeah. you know and and so the fact that it would mirror from your sphenoid to your pelvis makes all the sense in the world and Absolutely. everybody's sort of in between kind of figuring out how they how they transmit those forces yeah absolutely certainly we're in craniosacral world we treat as above so below if you start yeah. at the head finish at the sacrum and yeah i love it yeah cool um okay let's talk about some of those nerves that go through the sphenoid bone this is I will um, use this skull as well, but I, I need to have a look at that. So basically the optic nerve, which is created, there's, there's a few of them. The optic nerve, it comes from the diencephalon of the brain. So I've got some photos as well, so we can have a look at that. Travels through the optic canal. It's a special sensory nerve. So it's definitely an outgrowth of the early brain along with the um, uh, olfactory nerve. So those two are like actually from the neural tube. So I was gonna say we got sites. our notochord and it and it from yeah. our notochord we got our neural our tube. Dural tube and off our dural tube now we get all these uh, nerves, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you think basically, you know, the brain is just one big tube, it kind of goes like that and then it comes back on itself and sits. And those optic vesicles and the olfactory nerve come out from directly from that. Whereas the other nerves come back from the hindbrain. Oh, yeah. okay. So um, that comes out and basically is your main optic nerve for your eye. And that's very complicated, but it's amazing because obviously it sends messages back and upside down, doesn't it? To the back of your brain. <laughs> and then in the meantime, part of those messages go through something called Maya's loop, which goes across the temporal lobe of your brain and I've got it somewhere. What did I say about that? But basically, it's um, they that processes aspects of visual perception. And um, so, if you've got a temporal bone uh, compression, it's very important to think about how that's affecting how the horse perceives um, things that they see and memories associated with that. And for anybody who's who has still under the myth of horses 
you know, you have to train each eye because they don't transfer information across the brain. You can just let that one go. Horses have yes. more cross hemisphere uh, optic information than we do. And they have a huge corpus callosum, which is the highway between the two hemispheres. So they absolutely do. And have you done the webinar on iridology yet? Um, no, not yet. I'm looking forward. Oh, to yeah. Well, I mean, because that I've just started studying that for my own use to help with um, head shaking. And, um, you know, horses have those lovely bubbly things in their eyes called yeah. corpora nigra, which unfortunately seems to be kind of just being dismissed as something that shades their eyes from the sun, which I remember thinking, I thought they had eyelids for that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but the corpora nigra is actually the central nervous system. Okay, so what's going on there is it's direct, it's, I mean, the horse's eye is uh, a huge unknown and, and the true function of the corpora nigra is unknown, but we don't have it. Horses have it. And I think it's like you said, they have a huge, almost 360 right. uh, perception, very much linked to their auditory um, senses as well as their smell sense. Incredible. Um, anyway, back to the, the yeah. cranial nerves. So cranial nerve three is the ocular motor nerve kind of what it says in the in the word it's very much a motor nerve it really does a lot of the eye movement it uh, uh, leaves the skull by the orbital fissure so on the horse um, if I'm showing you the underside the orbital fissure is in here deep in there okay okay and on us it is here and this so it's kind of like back of the yeah. eye socket yep. yeah so this this top bit here was also that's the a bit you know when you're born is in a in a separate part quite incredible so you've got one two three parts of this sphenoid and that little line is where a lot of your cranial nerves go okay. through there um, which makes sense because it's feeding the back of your eye socket is going to get your eyes to move whichever way they need to <clears throat> So for, um, for humans, it's definitely looking up and looking out, looking out to the side. Um, I realized I spent too long in the computer because I can't, looking out left and right hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, cranial nerve four is the trochlear nerve. That's uh, the smallest of the cranial nerve, innervates a single muscle, and it also uh, transverses through the cavernous sinus which is basically kind of leading up up to the orbital fissure. So it kind of goes through there and it travels along with the trigeminal nerve, which I'm going to talk about as well. Again, it's quite linked to head shaking, um, photophobia. You know, if you think all of those um, eye nerves, if they get inflamed or compressed, bright lights, horses don't like bright arenas if they're having head shaking syndrome. Um, they're better, you know, they seem to be better under a tree. All of that stuff gets affected. Um, so here we go, cranial nerve five, which is the trigeminal nerve. That's a huge, huge nerve. The ophthalmic portion leaves the skull again by the orbital fissure. There's a lot coming out of here, a lot of nerves. It's quite incredible. Um, and that will, it sit travels alongside cranial nerve four, cranial nerve three, innervates the, um, the skin, the surrounding eyes, surrounding the eyes, the ethmoid bone. It's 
where you get a lot of snorting coming along with head shaking as well when that gets inflamed, the lacrimal gland, the upper eyelid. Um, the maxillary portion of the trigeminal nerve innervates the lower eyelid, also comes out through here. And the mandibular branch in the maxillary and comes out of the foramen ovale and rotundum ovale, which are also up here. Okay. <laughs> and well, in fact, stuff, I think the bottom line is there's a lot of nerves coming out around the eyes. And a lot the of nerves. Yeah. So there's in <laughs> us, that's the rear song that comes out of there. There's lots of little holes. <laughs> right. And then the final uh, nerve, which definitely has a path through there, is the abducent nerve, which is cranial nerve six. And um, that's the lateral, for your lateral gaze. So for, for example, let's do a little exercise here. If you all bring your hands out to the side and then bring your fingertips to the front forward enough so you can see them out of the side of your gaze. Just wriggle your fingers. Can you see them? If you just soften your gaze. Yep. So that's your lateral senses moving there. And that also good, it's also a very good exercise when you've been focusing on the screen. Yeah, getting that peripheral vision. Mm. up and running again this um cranial nerve six also is very close to the cranial nerve eight which um is the vestibular cochlear nerve um which you can see is up here and has lots of a very direct link to balance and sight as well okay let me give you some pictures you can have a look at that okay i'm going to shrink us so that we can see these yeah. there we go Woo yeah so oh sorry sorry how do i get back just go to your uh, stop share uh -oh. hang on uh-oh <laughs> sorry everyone <laughs> i'll get you just, there you just go down to the to, to the oh. bottom of your powerpoint where it lets you back up. you should yeah down left oh, here there we go there you go here we go yeah. yay. yay good so yeah this is more close-up photos um let's move this down here but you can see um the photo on the right the v2 that's obviously the um where are we uh, that's the mandibular portion of the trigeminal nerve coming down and the v1 that's the ophthalmic portion that's up there look at all those nerves going into the eye Wow. all the way from the orbital fissure and the one on the left is a closer version you can see how they operate the eye and the muscle and you know if i'm looking at a horse and asking them to turn their head you can see um, if they're tight in their neck and the top of their head they'll really struggle to kind of turn and they'll start to blink their eye turning to one way is actually quite painful so that head and neck in relation to the eye movement is so um, important and it affects horses a lot. Yeah, we've had we've had a couple of uh, lectures about bridles and we've had a lec uh, Catherine Wyckoff talked about the trigeminal and vagal nerve connection and this picture on the right she used it so those of you who are mm. interested in that go back and check out those webinars Catherine Wyckoff for mm. sure and then um, Hillary Clayton talked about bridal fit and we had one with uh, Stephanie. And we're gonna have another person talking about bit fit soon. Yeah, Asha. it's it's very underlooked, I think. And I know saddles are fitted specifically to the horse, but I think bridles need to be as well. Yeah. 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 They sort of come in three sizes and often the horse is 
Okay, it is so, different. It's so I have different. a really dear friend, and he created a head measure for a bridal. And, oh, wow. Um, and when he got done with the computations, there were five million different possible combinations of bridles oh. for horses, and we have small, medium, large, and cob, right? I mean, that's I like, and, and it was amazing when, you know, he did the math, how many, how much variation there can be in, in the head shape and size. Oh. It's huge. And, you know, just, it's just the whole industry waiting to just evolve as well. Yeah. And, I, and there's some great people out there because um, as soon as the bridle's on, obviously there is a connotation there for the horse that there's a restriction, even if it's quite a nice fitting bridle. And then once the rider's on and there is a contact, the horse has to rebalance themselves again. Yep. And this is, these are extreme examples. So, you can see both of these pictures are showing the horse's head restriction. Yep. They can't move their eyes or their neck because they're held in a fixed position. And that to me, it's just causes so many problems. Um, just that, you know, and having ridden track work a bit like that at times when a horse is pulling that horse, they can't see. So they're, they're straining through their neck, through their mouth, through their jaw, through their TMJ. They're looking in one fixed place all the time, which is not for for animals to do, and then that's affecting their neck. Yeah. So um, that's where you can see all those eye muscle problems happening and the neck muscle problems happening. And of course, the sphenoid starts to get restricted in, in its breathing motion. It's just human human nerves. Wow. Quite a few. Yeah, yeah it's good. Yep. <laughs> We could go on to dentistry. <laughs> yeah, the, and I think is it Gillian Crimery also talked about the importance of having a balanced mouth as well. Very important. Yeah, I want to get somebody back and talk more about that connection because we did a webinar on teeth, but I needed something just really basic to get people started. And then I really want to find some people that can come in and talk. Oh, well, I could definitely, I could put you in touch with Sylvia Reed, who's a natural balance dentist, Perfect. who is a complete nerd. And, yeah. um, because yeah, I so I did get try and start a subject from a basic perspective and then gradually move into the more Yeah. Because it's so yeah, so overwhelming so rapidly. Anyway, this is pretty It can be. Yeah. But I mean I followed the natural balance centers in Holland last year because um they focus on incisor balancing and TMJ function and C1 and 2 and then, you know, and I watched a horse's foot go from medial to straight just from balancing out an incisor. You know, it's it's massive, and of course they're so different to us because their teeth are up the whole time, and you know they're starting right up under the orbit. And so, if you can imagine, if one molar table is unbalanced, that's going to affect the position of the sphenoid as well, yep, and everything else. But at the same time, in humans, there's also problems. If I see a person, one of the things I've taken the history is if they've had any heavy dental work, because that will affect sphenoid function mandibular function tmj um i've certainly heard of a story of a young kid who had braces on that were tightened too much yep and he became suicidal Oof. because it restricted the sphenoid movement and that restriction in movement has a real kind of psychological connotation on how you see life a closed restricted mind gives you a very closed restricted view and open uh -oh. and, and free moving like cranium changes your view yep. 
Yes, sorry for the gore. I should have pre Sorry, I should have warned you. Um, <laughs> too late now. <laughs> too late. <laughs> Anyone's eating dinner, just push it to one side. Yeah. Um, I'm just um, showing you a sagittal section of the horse's head here, just to um, outline where the sphenoid's sitting. So obviously on us, it's very upright and on the horse, it's, you know, lying very horizontally. But also I want to talk a little bit about the pituitary glands and how it sits and how it works. So just orient, so here, bit, yeah, I, I recognize 18 and 17 and 15. So just oh, great. <laughs> yeah, so that's the, that's the hind brain, that's the cerebellum, little brain. It's a little, might be a little bit, it's very powerful. It's got 50% more uh, neurons than the cerebrum. So it's not just for um, motor function. It's a lot of, they're finding it's to do with social engagement as well. And it's much bigger in horses than us. Um, here we have, uh, where's my pointer? This go. here is the basilar part of the uh, sphenoid bone. Okay. That's that, but it's kind of sliced in half, okay? Yep. Um, where it says number 16 is the sinus part of the sphenoid. So the sphenoid actually has, it's a very airy bone. It has got sinuses in it, which is fascinating and also very important in its function. Now, just below number 15, I've, I've been looking, 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 is where the pituitary gland will sit. And just forward of that is the optic chiasma, chiasma, okay? And just here we've got further on, we've got the ethmoid bone. There's no room for error, is there? No. It's just all just right in its place. Except for that gigantic yeah. sinus. <laughs> I know, isn't it amazing? It's so amazing. There's a lot of sinus, obviously, and up here's a sinus bone as well. In craniosacral work, the sphenoid bone feels very light in its energy. In its energy, you can feel like it is very much a sinus bone when it when it wants to sort of appear. Here's a closer version. Obviously, I've just put a blue square around where I feel the pituitary gland is on the horse. Um, here we have the medulla oblongata. That's the spinal cord. Um, we've got the hypothalamus. Where's my book? <laughs> yeah, no, that would be right. Yeah. Here we go. There's the, they're the sinus bones of the sphenoid. Yep. Yeah. Here's a break. So I'm just showing you guys some pictures basically of, um, oh, the sphenoid, the, um, Pituitary gland, which is in two parts. You've got your neuro and your adeno hypophysis, the anterior portion and the posterior portion. Okay. Now, I'm talking, I'm going to get my charger because my battery's getting low. Oh, no. Okay. Keep talking. <laughs> Keep talking. So, basically, um, I'll have to put this on a big screen, but in the human, this bone here, this little part of the sphenoid bone is called a Turkish saddle. I can't show it on the horse because I don't have the separate bone on the horse, but that is where the pituitary gland will sit, just in there. And then you've got your optic nerves coming through here and they cross in front of here and go to the back. 
but this is really, really important. And so cranial bone motion and movement in this bone, imagine it is rocking like this. So as it rocks like that, that rocking helps the uh, pituitary gland to secrete the hormones. Um, I will always check this. If a horse has Cushing's, I'm gonna look at cranial bone motion and whether there is restriction in the cranial base and in the head and how can we help that? Is there potential for it to breathe? So um, the sphenol bone plays a huge, huge part in pituitary gland um, functionality. I just, I'm gonna put, could you put me on the big screen for a bit so I could just show people what the Turkish saddle is. Do I just go share screen, stop share? Stop share. Oh, yeah. Here we go. So where are we? Here's the front behind my eyes. I'm gonna show you looking down. That's the Turkish saddle. Literally is like a Turkish saddle. Your pituitary gland sits in there. Here's the occiput. So in the horse, it'll be like that. And it needs to just breathe a little bit. And see that rocking motion? Mm -hmm. That helps the pituitary gland to secrete the hormones. Hmm. So it's really important to sort of see, is, that, is, there, is it breathing? Um, what's going on? Go back to that. Um, go. Um, good at sharing your screen. <laughs> oh, I'm getting good. <laughs> I'm getting the hang of it. I'm just showing some more um, colorful photos of the cranial base. Where did you get what, these images? Where, these, these are from Netter. I thought they were Netter. I was like, I recognize these. Yeah, he's amazing, isn't he? Yes. Just want to yeah, make him credit. Yeah, so I've got his massive book, um, but they're just so helpful. And as you can see, here's the sphenoid on the lower uh, left-hand side, rear, rear portion of the eye. And above that, that's the wing, the wing. Now here is, as if you're looking down into the skull and you're looking at the Turkish saddle. Where is my pointer here? There's the rear socket of the eyes there. All of the cranial optic nerves go through here, ocular motor, adducent. Now back here, I'm just gonna to touch on one more thing and then we'll leave it. It is the clinoid process. So that's um, my point is just there and just there. And then up here on the yellow part is the Christigalli of the ethmoid. Now these three areas, one, two, three, are very important for the uh, membrane system of the brain, which in then encases the spinal cord. So it's kind of showing you how even more interconnected we are. Here, this is what we call the reciprocal tension membrane. And the horse does have one, obviously. So you see how it looks like a sickle? Oh yeah. Almost yeah. like that. It's incredible, isn't it? It's like a helmet. This part um, divides the hemispheres and it attaches to this part, the Christigalli of the ethmoid. Okay? Okay. And this part here, this is in, that's covering the sphenoid 
but the attachments down here are to the clinoid processes of the sphenoid, which are back here, okay? I'm just gonna make you, move you up a little bit. There we go. Yeah. So where's my, so that, that membrane system comes around and it attaches here to the sphenoid. Now here is where it can get interesting. So if this is restricted, you'll have that tension headache because it won't be able to breathe and pull those membranes in a healthy way. Um, let's say for example, you slipped and you, or you fell off your horse and you landed on your backside on your back, really compressing the spine and that sock that encases the spinal cord called the dura, which is also attached to the spinal cord. That then restricts the movement up here. So you see that whole um, sock goes all the way up through the foramen magnum that's up here and all continuous around here and back down again. So it's like one big sock. So if one bit's strained, that's gonna affect the other bit. And then you've got your tension headache, your neck hurts, all from landing on your backside when your horse jump, dumps you. <laughs> and so that is what you were talking about at the beginning, the philosophy of osteopathy. Life and matter can be united and that union cannot continue without, with any hindrance to the free and absolute motion. So I think wow. that might be, I sort of condensed it because I thought it's quite a lot that we've covered. <laughs> Condensed it into a two-hour webinar. That's okay. Yeah. Oh God! Don't tell me. Was it two hours? Oh, an hour and three quarters. Oh my God! <laughs> I thought I was. I thought maybe that's an hour. But yeah, that's um. It's what happens. So it's what happens. And and I and I just have to ask this question, and I hope it doesn't lead to another hour. But of course, <laughs> <laughs> that sock and that um, uh, uh, what it, what's the membrane in the brain? The sickle. Typical tension membrane. Yeah, is that is yeah. that fascia? Yes, it's it's a a tougher for it's dura. It's part of the dural membrane system that encases the spinal cord. So, um, Tammy may have talked about that. There's the dura mater, which is the tough mother, and then you've got the arachnoid mater, which is like a spider web where all the cerebral spinal fluid comes in and out. And then you've got the pia mater, which is the delicate mother. The pia encases the brain like um, cling film or saran wrap and encases the spinal cord is just the same. The arachnoid is the web-like structure in between the pia and the dura. The dura, this is all dura here. So it's a form of, of fascia. Mesenchyme, I want to say mesenchyme right. I mean, might I'm be. I was going to say, I'm sure that it's, I'm sure it's a modified fascial system. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's uh, mesenchymal tissue, perhaps. Well, I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong. But uh, it's, it's got to relate to those three, right? Yeah, yeah. Reciprocal tension being if it always needs to be in tension. But as you can imagine, if something is pulling and not able to move, it's going to affect everything else. Right. Which is what mm. fascia does. Yes. Absolutely. So... Wow. Well, just go ahead and unshare your screen there and we'll wrap yep. the up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for going on for so long. Oh my God. No, it's okay. It's, uh, <laughs> it's really interesting. And I, you know, um, 
I we have some really dedicated followers that hang in there and watch every yes. word. And I know that sometimes things get a little heavy and a little bit deep, but you know, if you don't put it out there, people can't learn. And so I think that's, right. that's you know, if we can all take it in our own time and we can all take it in our in quantities that we can absorb, but if it's there for the taking, if it's recorded and out there mm. on YouTube, then people can go back. And a lot of these webinars, we actually make podcasts out of them. Um, they're up on Podbean and I'm calling them Wendy's, Wendy's Winnies. <laughs> oh, no way. That's so cool. Well, listen, if anyone takes anything away from this webinar, it will be that the um, spine, the sphenoid is a modified vertebrae. It's two vertebrae fused into one. The occiput, also a vertebrae. So the spine goes all the way to the head. Okay, Pam wants you to do two more hours. <laughs> no bathroom break. Yep. <laughs> I'm sure when we get to Pam's webinar, it, but it, it's really nice because it'll dovetail in. And that's the thing is, yeah. when we start to understand the formation of things, the origin of things, the function, you know, it really helps us just understand what's happening when we, when we start to run into problems or can't yes. understand, you know, why, why is this? And the more possibilities of answers that we have, then the better opportunity to solve it. Yeah, and I love learning about where things started. Yeah, and and the the they they're never lost just because you can't see you know the embryo anymore doesn't mean it's not there it's still there. Awesome. Well, just Thank go you. ahead and share your screen there, and like I said, well, well, Pam's like get another glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Oh, thank you so much, Wendy. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and yeah, and thank you, Emma. Thank you, Pam. And you know, it, but it's just really great. And like I said, it's you know, we keep just building this library of information. And my goal is that people start to see that these are not disparate pieces of information; they're all part of a whole. And you know, we we can yeah. look at it from lots of different perspectives, but we're still making a horse, you know. And um, yeah. and so thanks, Sinead. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. Yeah, no, it's, I'm sure that we'll. Uh, thank you so much for your input on the embryology. It's so good. So you know, because you have so much um, knowledge about it too. It's just. It's old. It's but like it wasn't somewhere. just talking to people going, "Oh my God, what is she talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> no, we're all nerds around here. Everybody that's stuck this yeah. off. Nerd. It's great. I need. I've got some webinar catching up to do, so I'm going to have to make a note and listen to Bob Bowker's marathon this evening. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Thank um, you. And just remember tomorrow, I'm going to have Marie McAteer with me at one o'clock and we're going to, I, I got to see what, <laughs> after COVID, we should have a conference. You know, I think that would be a phenomenal idea to That'd be great. everybody together or as many as we can, these speakers, because it's, you know, it's, it would be really great. I think it would be like Comic-Con for horse people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we get to dress up too, just like Comic-Con or maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, we can find our own version of that, right? Yeah. It'd be really great. And I've had that idea of, of how that's a great idea. We do kind of a conference or something with some of the just more brilliant people. Um, and, and I'm still working on some that I have to kind of harangue and lasso into getting into the webinar so, um, to bring in some more pieces of the puzzle. They do it. They do it in the biodynamic craniosacral. They call it Breath of Life Conference, and they just have all these amazing speakers from the trauma um, corner of the world, from 
craniosacral from everything yeah so it's yeah. it's just with the horse stuff there's it's not just the feet you know it's energy work it's cbd work oil you know it's yeah. everything it's amazing yeah it's really cool we could actually chart our own plane there's <laughs> that many of us <laughs> imagine <laughs> I know you'll get over here for when we are post COVID and have our. Clients. I have to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, tomorrow I have Marie Mackett here. We're going to look at where movement begins. Marie's uh, a four hoof surefoot practitioner, and um, I've known her forever, it feels like. But um, many, many years ago, when I first met her, I gave Marie a walking lesson, and she's now working with people over in New Zealand because she's a New Zealander and helping people move better and move again. So that'll be a fascinating webinar. And of course, we'll continue next week. And we have Pam on November 16th with um, uh, Good Horse, Bad Body. I'm really looking forward to that one. And it sounds like Pam's got lots of new bones for us. And, and that'll be just awesome. Wow. I can't yeah. wait for that. Yeah. You're going to have to like get up in the middle of the night, but that's okay. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> everybody for joining me and uh, stay tuned and uh, plan for three hours. Okay, Pam, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Pam. <laughs> All right, thanks. Bye. Thanks, Wendy. Bye. Bye. Bye.